0: Licensing has grown in the 1950s to around 5% of professions to somewhere between 20 to 25% today. So, you know, a four-fold increase, you know, that, that's pretty significant. And that's a lot of added red tape uh, burden for small businesses and new entrants. So we need to get that problem under control. And the good news is, is I think a lot of governors, legislators, local mayors are starting to understand this. And again, the COVID crisis now gives us a good experiment, a good A-B test, if you will, to look at this and say, here's our chance to reform. Why do I need this license to, you know, braid somebody's hair, arrange flowers? How silly, those can go. Other licenses obviously need to stay. We continue to need to license doctors and dentists and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of gray area in between where reform is possible.
1: My name is Karen Zarnicki. I'm Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you for joining us today for our webinar to discuss policy solutions to assist with small business recovery. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused a significant economic downturn and small businesses have been severely impacted. Mandatory shutdowns and social distancing forced many small businesses to close. Others were faced with decreased demand, new customer expectations, and operational challenges due to health and safety restrictions. Even as some states have begun to ease some restrictions, disrupted business operations complicate the economic recovery. How do policymakers help small businesses in the near future and how do we help navigate this new normal? Joining me today are three experts who have studied issues affecting small business who will help us explore some of these very tough questions. Our first speaker today will be Patrick McLaughlin. He is a Senior Research Fellow and Director of Policy Analytics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses primarily on regulations and the regulatory process. He recently published a policy brief titled, Small Business Recovery After COVID-19. Our second speaker will be Elizabeth Melito, who is Senior Executive Counsel at the National Federation of Independent Business. She's responsible for managing litigation and amicus work For the NFIB. She also comments and writes regularly on small business cases before federal and state courts. She's covered a wide range of COVID-related issues for NFIB members following the economic shutdown. And our third speaker will be Adam Thera, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He specializes in innovation and entrepreneurship with a particular focus on the public policy concerns surrounding emerging technologies, His recent policy brief is Occupational Licensing Reform and the Right to Earn a Living, a Blueprint for Action. All right, Patrick, I'm going to throw the first question to you. Can you help us frame our discussion today by laying out why small businesses are being so disproportionately affected by these circumstances?
2: Absolutely. Let's just think about how to evaluate small business performance in the economy, whether there's a pandemic and economic collapse going on or even simply during normal times. One thing you can do is just look across all industries, all sectors of the economy, and see how they're doing in a broad sense, either by comparing one industry or sector to another or by aggregating them into groups and comparing different groups of industries. For example, you can compare the manufacturing sector to telecoms or businesses that provide services to those that sell durable or non-durable goods. So one obvious point when you think about the economy that way is that the current crisis has affected those businesses that provide services more than those that sell tangible goods. Think about businesses like restaurants or nail salons, hair salons, pet groomers, uh, guided tours. There's interaction between people. Those are going to tend to be the same businesses where social distancing or stay-at-home orders are going to disproportionately affect them. That's an obvious point, but another point related to small businesses is that there tends to be more small businesses in percentage terms in those same industries, those industries that are hardest hit by social distancing and stay-at-home mandates. Again, just think about restaurants. So that's one reason why small businesses are disproportionately affected. They're simply disproportionately in the line of fire, so to speak, because they provide relatively more services. Second, you can look within each industry and ask how small businesses are doing compared to other businesses within the same industry. So in this sort of analysis, what you see is that small businesses are disproportionately harmed compared to larger or medium-sized businesses within the same industries because they have the same, they have resource constraints that the larger businesses may not face. And this is the same reason that small businesses are harmed by regulation in general, even during normal times compared to large businesses. Small businesses don't necessarily have the same sort of cash reserves to fall back on that large businesses do. That means it's harder not only to merely continue operating while losing money, but also harder to shift business practices quickly, which is something they've all been trying to do now. Move to online sales, move to automation, find some ways to outsource some of your work, or go remote. It's obviously very hard to go remote if you operate a restaurant. So those sorts of Solutions become harder if you don't have the reserves to fall back on that larger businesses do. And you also have less access to loans compared to large businesses if you're a small business. So within even each industry, that's another reason that small businesses are disproportionately harmed by the crisis.
1: All right, let me ask you a follow-up question then. Your research primarily focuses on regulations and you recently published a state-level approach to reducing the regulatory burden on small businesses to help them in this economy. Can you give us a brief overview of that plan?
2: Sure. So the idea here is, let's find all ways we can to help small businesses succeed. They're being disproportionately harmed for all the reasons I just described. And one of the obstacles that is going to stand in the way of recovery for small businesses is regulations. This is true, of course, even in non-crisis times that small businesses and regulations are often a more negative relationship, let's say, than what large businesses might have with regulations. So the solution here is, it's actually, it's very nice because this isn't something that requires uh, another set of of checks to be written and sent out to individuals or businesses. Instead, we can just look at what regulatory burdens are out there that face the focus on small businesses, and can we find a way to get them out of the way? Can we can we create exemptions for groups of small businesses from some set of regulations? Uh, the idea here is just focus on big swaths of regulations. One example at the federal level would be regulations that came out of Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank. The Dodd-Frank Act was trying to create some sort of set of financial regulations that would stave off future financial crises like we saw back in 2008. Well, Dodd-Frank was primarily aimed at large banks. That was the target, but there was some collateral damage. There were smaller banks and smaller businesses that were probably inadvertently affected by that act of Congress and the regulations that came out of it. Can we go and look at that group of regulations and create exemptions for small businesses for that entire group? By taking an entire group and creating exemptions there, you make it pretty low cost for everyone to understand what happened. You don't have to be an expert to understand, oh, all the regulations from Dodd-Frank now don't apply to me if I'm a small business. So that's the thinking here. Just find ways to exempt... Small businesses as a group from other groups of regulations.
1: All right, great. Thank you, Patrick. Now, Beth, I'd like to turn to you. Your organization, NFIB, has been surveying your membership, asking small businesses what their biggest challenges are. Can you share with us what you've learned? Yes.
3: Thank you so much for inviting me to participate today, too. So, the severity of the coronavirus outbreak and the regulatory measures that cities and states have taken to control and are continuing to take to control the outbreak are really having a devastating impact on small businesses. I mean, four months ago the Dow was close to thirty thousand, employment rates were at historic highs, and coronavirus was still novel. Um, Since then, COVID-19 has economically devastated our country, and it hit hardest the small businesses that are both critical to our economy's growth and also, as Patrick pointed out, vulnerable to disasters. Furthermore, the policy responses have not always worked out as planned. Of the small businesses that have applied for a paycheck protection loan or an SBA economic injury disaster loan or both, 46%, according to NFIB's survey, anticipate needing additional financial support in some form over the next 12 months. And many small businesses are really finding it onerous to keep up with the constantly changing state and local guidelines while running their businesses. So over the past few weeks, um, I've talked to several restaurant owners that are deciding no matter what their officials say, it's just not safe or feasible to keep going. Um, I've spoken with restaurant owners who've decided just to permanently close or at least stay closed while the virus is active because operating on a reduced capacity, you know, after studying the restaurant's layouts, the interior layout with required social distancing, it's just not feasible. They can't ensure the safety of their customers, they can't ensure the safety of their employees, most importantly, their employees, and the costs just make it not worthwhile to stay open. Yelp has estimated that 66,000 small businesses will never reopen. And I saw a more recent academic survey that estimated that about 110,000 small businesses have already shut down permanently. So small businesses make up half the US economy, they account for nearly half the jobs, and they've been hardest hit, I would argue, during this unprecedented pandemic. The challenges they face are not of their own making. And they're doing everything they can to keep their employees safe, reopen their businesses, and support their communities. Um, But relief efforts so far, I think, have fallen short. They've allowed many to remain afloat, but there's still more work to be done. Um, NFIB represents about 300,000 small and independent businesses across the country, and our members are in every industry. And we recently issued phase four legislative recommendations for Congress, and we think these reflect our members' biggest concerns and will help provide the support and the protection they need um, to keep going. Our top priority right now includes securing near-term and longer-term financial assistance, because as I said, 46% of our membership has already indicated there is going to be a need for additional financial support. So we are, you know, asking for that as our first priority. In addition, we are asking that Congress take steps to create strong liability protections that will enable small businesses to reopen safely and smartly without fear of devastating lawsuits. So one thing is I'll just say in my opening remarks here as I close up is the coronavirus has been the great equalizer for small businesses, whether it's a winery in Oregon, a theater in San Diego, a coffee shop in Boston, a restaurant in Michigan, a summer camp in Virginia or a hotel in Michigan, um, I've just spoken with all those recently coronavirus has been devastating. So the outbreak has left few, if any, small businesses unscathed, unfortunately. Let me ask you a follow-up question
1: then on the liability issues. Do you have a statement of principles with regard to what small businesses are looking
3: for in that regard? Yes, we sure do, Karen. And as you indicated too, we've been surveying our membership every week initially, and now it's gone to an every other week. And 70% of our members have expressed concern about liability, whether it's employees or customers. And as I said, too, small business owners with whom I work with and talk with every day want to ensure that they're Employees are safe, that is absolutely paramount, and also their customers, because this is about the safety of their communities at large. But they are very concerned about increases in liability when reopening. So we are urging Congress to adopt NFIB's liability protection principles, and I'll just real briefly run through. So a recommendation that Congress specifically provide an employer liability for physical injury due to COVID-19 is adjudicated under the state workers comp law to the extent such liability exists there Two business protections against liability to customers and other third parties, unless those customers or parties can prove that the business knowingly failed to develop and implement a reasonable plan for reducing the risk of exposure to COVID-19 and that that failure caused injury. Um, Three, that permitted lawsuits are limited to persons who experience a serious physical injury due to COVID-19, resulting in hospitalization. And finally, for fines imposed on unscrupulous trial attorneys who are bringing who bring or are bringing any frivolous. COVID-19 related lawsuits. So we think those are important principles there. I mean again small businesses have just been devastated by the shutdown. They're beginning to reopen, but even one frivolous lawsuit could force a small business to close its doors for good and leaving the employees without jobs. So we do not want to see that
1: happen. That's very understandable. Okay, Adam, I'm going to go to you. Your expertise is in innovation and entrepreneurship and which is really the foundation of small business. And you just wrote a book on evasive entrepreneurs. Can you tell us what the current state of innovation and entrepreneurship is in America, and is it all bad news?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Karen. Uh, Thanks for uh, inviting me. I I think the the news in America is mixed. Uh, There is a lot of innovation happening, a lot of entrepreneurialism still out there, obviously. But we, we face a problem with our innovation culture in America. This is what I write about in my work on the base of entrepreneurs and permissions to innovation um, is the idea of innovation culture. Innovation culture is most easily defined as the, the social and political attitudes and pronouncements towards innovation, technology and entrepreneurialism that taken together affect the innovative capacity uh, of a nation or a culture. And we have a decidedly mixed uh, innovation culture in the United States because we have many sectors and technologies that are, as I like to say, sort of born free, born into a world of permissionless innovation where they do not, they're not confronted with a lot of re- regulatory restraints. That would be things like the internet and information technologies most prominently recently. But then we have a lot of other sectors and technologies and entrepreneurs who are, as I like to say, born into regulatory captivity. They come into a new sector, they try to break into it, um, and unfortunately they're immediately confronted with a lot of rules and regulations. The regulatory problem in the United States is a major impediment to our innovation culture and our ability to change it for the better. Um, And this is particularly a problem for small businesses the problem is really twofold. It's a volume problem and a complexity problem. And what Mercatus Research and the research of other institutions has found is that regulation just sort of endlessly accumulates in the United States at the federal, state, and local level, and that that in turn creates a real problem for small businesses in particular who don't have the ability not only to cope with the sheer volume of rules they're confronted with, but the very complexity of them. I'll just give you one really telling statistic. The consultancy uh, Deloitte did a survey of just the federal US code a few years back. And the Deloitte survey found that 68% of federal regulations have never been updated even once, and that 17% have only been updated once. That means 85% of all federal regulations have only been updated once or never. Most of them have never been updated. That's a huge headache for businesses and specifically small entrepreneurs. And so regulation, as we know from economic evidence, can stifle that innovative capacity, diminish product quality, raise prices. But the really crucial thing is, is it stifles innovative dynamism, our ability to have new startups that can come in and refresh the competitive waters uh, every so often.
1: I think you also have written something called the Fresh Start Initiative with some colleagues, uh, really giving a blueprint for what to do with some of the uh, regulations that have been suspended during the pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I'd be happy to, uh, Patrick and I, uh, along with our colleague Matt Mitchell, uh, were taking a look at what was happening in the, in the, in the COVID lockdown uh, period, and we started noticing how many federal, state, and local agencies uh, were starting to pause, sunset, or shed rules and regulations during this crisis. And we thought, well, that's really interesting, because you would think that if these rules are really supposed to serve public health and welfare, now would be the most important time of all to be enforcing them. And yet governments left and right and in between were all shedding these rules or at least suspending them briefly. And so Patrick and Matt and I sat down and said, well, this is a really good opportunity to study what works and what doesn't in the world of regulation and what kind of burdens it imposes, and which rules can go to hopefully give us a fresh start or sort of a proverbial spring cleaning as we like to call it of Very government. Good. Doesn't mean we get rid of doesn't mean we get rid of all the rules and regulations, but we need to reassess them. Again, this is what we never do. We never take a a, a good spring cleaning uh, to our to our government rules. This is particularly problematic at the state and local level where occupational licensing laws and other permitting rules really encumber entrepreneurial activity. And so what Patrick and Matt and I have proposed is the idea of the so-called Fresh Start Initiative that would have an expert body, and again, it could be federal, state, local in character, so expert bodies, plural, basically just survey and do an inventory of everything that was paused or suspended in the wake of the the COVID lockdowns, evaluate those rules sort of before and after. We've got a nice A-B test now, and say, like, well, what was the result? And by the way, what other economic evidence did we have before the lockdown that these rules were already imposing costs on businesses, specifically small businesses, and then put together a proposal through this Fresh Startup Initiative to somehow sunset these rules or at least comprehensively reform them. And this would be particularly effective, I think, at the state and local level with occupational licensing laws and other permitting systems. We've had proposals out there in the past to have occupational boards Reevaluated and maybe sunset. Recently, in some states like Florida, we've seen comprehensive occupational licensing reform finally taking effect. The COVID crisis is a crisis, but it's also a good opportunity for us to reassess the wisdom of certain government policies or programs and to consider which of those are imposing an unnecessary burden on small business and entrepreneurialism.
1: All right, great. Uh, we already have two questions that have come in, and I'm going to start with the first one. Are there any industries that will allow you to work outside besides food delivery services that are thriving despite this pandemic? Beth, I think that's for you.
3: So, you know, it's it, that's a great question, too, because I was just on the phone yesterday with somebody who said, you know, we have really seen a growth in revenue this year, and we did not anticipate that in March. We did not know what was going to happen. So, unsurprising cleaning industry. That's was his job. He owns, yes, yeah, some franchise, you know, cleaning franchises there. And he said, we are busier than ever. And he is having a problem right now, finding late, you know, finding employees, finding. Um... So there are industries and also delivery too. We have, you know, I've talked with a lot of um, those that are in the delivery service um, and even some in the trucking industry too, just really an uptick but it's been very unpredictable there. So there are also businesses that have successfully pivoted somewhat and moved to more online, you know, as Patrick just discussed. Um, and some have done that more successfully than others um, in the retail area there. So there are some industries that have really seen success and have really made lemonade out of lemons there. Um, and in some cases, it's been unsurprising, but I think more, more so we've seen, you know, devastation with businesses and those that are just really hurting limping and not sure in some industries again the restaurant travel tourism anything related to schools education daycares there it's just they are hurting and there is just not an end in sight they still still are not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel this is a long question but it's a good one to the offers of sba
1: loans ppp fiasco aside as a way of catching up on rent I have no desire to acquire more debt just to satisfy the landlord of my closed, open June 21 business, who at the end of this will likely still have his multiple buildings, which due to personal guarantee, I could be bankrupt. Where is the big inclusive plan to help us as a group of two businesses, landlord and tenant, who are in a symbiotic uh,
3: relationship? Beth? Yes. So this is why I, you know, I, I said at the outset in my opening remarks there that financial assistance is our top priority for business owners like you. So, like, or like this participant listener there too. I mean, we're hearing this now. I said, you know, we 46% indicated a need for additional financial support. Um, I anticipate that, you know, as we see more states restrict or pause the reopening, that 46% percent may go up there. So this is our big push with Congress is additional financial support like that participant out there, because I understand you do not want to be saddled with a loan. I get that there. And that's why the PPP program was so enticing and why we are asking for additional financial support. All right, great. I think this one's for Patrick. Are there examples of governments that have successfully
1: implemented regulatory reforms out there that local and state policymakers can emulate? So- who should they look to? Who should they talk to?
2: There are several very good examples. The first one that comes to mind is the one that really pioneered a regulatory reform model that other uh, states and provinces have been following. It's the province of British Columbia in Canada. They started way back in 2001 after they experienced a multi-year economic, uh, almost recession, but certainly lack of robust growth. And so they tried to figure out how can we get out of this uh, this long period of, of lack of growth? And what they came up with, uh, a new government was elected on promise of cutting regulations by one third. The government got into office and said, all right, what does that mean to cut regulations by one third? So they came up with a plan. Let's, f- let's figure out how to measure how much regulation we have and then track progress and getting rid of it. So that was one of the first big key items to take away here. If you wanted to follow a model for successful regulatory reform, for cutting back on regulation, the first thing you need to do is measure how much regulation there is. And then to cut back on it, what they did was just set their own regulators to the task. Every state and many local jurisdictions have plenty of employees whose job it is to be a regulator. If regulators view their jobs, as not just I write new rules, but I also manage the portfolio of rules that already exist you now have an army at your disposal for regulatory reform. So the British Columbia government gave those regulators the incentive to cut back on old rules that weren't doing any good, that were maybe harmful, or that were just plain obsolete. They said, if you wanted to make new rules in your job as a regulator, of course, is to make new rules, that's fine. You got to go back and find old rules to get rid of in order to do that. So it's a a form of regulatory budgeting. They did at some points for every new rule you make, you have to get rid of two, sometimes one and three out. But variations on that regulatory budget using regulators themselves has proven to be very effective. In fact, British Columbia cut Their regulatory restriction counts, these are like obligations to do something that uh, regulations create, by much more than one-third. They cut it by over 40% just in a a short amount of time, a two-year period. Real quickly, other states have followed that model. We've seen Missouri do it in the last couple of years. We've seen Idaho do it in the last couple of years. And statistically, it shows up. One of my big projects is measuring regulation. I measure restrictions, just like I just mentioned, the the creation of obligations and prohibitions that regulations do. And Missouri uh, and Idaho have cut by more than 30% just in the last couple of years after implementing a regulatory budget scheme that was modeled explicitly after the British Columbia
1: approach. All right, we've got a lot of questions coming in, and Adam, I want to throw this one to you. I hear a lot about new technology platforms that have allowed small businesses to thrive and innovate. Are there some useful examples of how that has occurred during the pandemic?
0: Well, clearly there's a lot of great platforms out there that allow small businesses to to find a new way to reach uh, new audiences. I mean, you think of things like Etsy and eBay that have existed for a while now that allow people to connect with customers in all new ways. Um, and again, we're lucky because those digital platforms are sort of in this, what I call that born-free camp, and enjoy mostly a permissionless innovation environment where you don't have to get a license to operate. You don't have to have a special permission slip to utilize those. Um, the problem is, is at some point, you're still going to be confronted with a lot of existing regulations uh, at the state and local level that probably will encumber these things as we find out when digital platforms and services in the ride-sharing world or the sharing economy. Um, are immediately confronted uh, by state and local permitting systems. This is why it's really important that we understand that it's not enough to have these wonderful new permissionless innovation-oriented digital platforms. We have to have successful legislative reforms in order to unleash more entrepreneurialism, especially at the state and local level. As Patrick noted, we've got some really good models out there. There's model legislation for how to do this if uh, state and local lawmakers are on the, uh, on the call and interested um the Idaho experience uh, as patrick suggested is particularly instructive at one point Idaho decided to sunset their entire regulatory code and then more recently they've taken us up on our offer to have a spring cleaning with a so-called sort of fresh start initiative just at the Idaho level of things that they've got so reform is possible and we can drill down and we can do reforms for occupational licensing in particular if we want to do that Arizona Nebraska Florida other states have done this so these reform models are available Um, There's a lot of different flowers blooming out there, and so we need to take advantage of these things uh, during this moment.
1: And if you are looking for any of those contacts that we've been working with, whether it's been Patrick or Adam, uh, just shoot us an email uh, and we will uh, put you in contact with those individuals. Question from the vice mayor and councilwoman for the town of Christiansburg, Virginia, which is near Virginia Tech, where my oldest daughter went. And it says, I represent a community of 25,000 and I'm thinking of ideas on how to help our entire business community fairly across the board. We've offered a larger discount for lodging and meals, tax payments, but that's minor. I'd like to do more. Any suggestions? Beth, that's for you.
3: That's I'm I'm so happy to hear that. That is great. That this you know we've got an elected official looking to ways to make it easier for small business there. And I would just pick up on the reducing the regulatory burden. Um, I mean I mentioned at the outset too the conflicting. State and local safety and health guidelines to the extent that those can be minimized or eliminated at all. I mean, business owners who I talk with are doing all they can to keep up with the OSHA and the CDC provisions there. So this councilwoman is in Virginia, I think you said. So unfortunately, Virginia, yes, the Department of Yeah, the Department of Labor and Industry just instituted standards there, which are going to be very, very problematic for small businesses in Virginia there. So I think to the extent that the you know the municipalities can hold off on doing anything like that, business owners are trying to keep up with the CDC and OSHA guidelines there. And then any kind of unrestricted grants or assistance that can be provided small business owners, I think would be very helpful at this time, in addition to minimizing any additional regulatory burden or eliminating it any at all would also be helpful too. I mean, even things like not charging for shopping meters. I talked with a small retailer like that. And she said, you know, why can my, my city has not done that yet. Why on earth can they not do that to make it as easy as possible to do the curbside pickup, just things like that, you know, in the shoes of a small business center thinking through, but really, I'm so happy to hear that. All right, we've got a question on occupational licensing.
1: When it comes to occupational licensing and regulation, have you heard any policymakers beginning to have the conversation around around whether or not it makes sense to allow some of the temporary licensing restrictions that have been lifted in response to COVID permanent? I think, Adam, you started to reference this earlier.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what's been happening. In the wake of the crisis, and this idea of sort of the spring cleanings or the fresh start initiative, really at its core, at the state and local level in particular, is the idea of getting excessive licensing under control. Just just to give you a feel for how big this problem is, um, licensing has grown in the 1950s to around five percent. Of uh, professions to somewhere between 20 to 25 percent today, um, so you know a fourfold increase. You know that that's pretty significant, and that's a lot of a de- added red tape uh, burden for small businesses and new entrants. Um, so we need to get that problem under control. And the good news is, is I think a lot of governors, uh, lo- legislators, local mayors are starting to understand this. And again, the COVID crisis now gives us a good experiment, a good A-B test, if you will, to look at this and say, here's our chance to reform. So I would say one of the things that lawmakers could do that are on, on this call is to think about identifying at least sort of a top 10 list, like what are the most burdensome rules in our jurisdiction as identified by uh, by entrepreneurs in the business community? And what can we do to reform or address those rules? Or maybe just sunset them the way they did in Florida. They just said, look, look, why do I need this license to, you know, braid somebody's hair, or arrange flowers? How silly. Um, Those can go. Other licenses obviously need to stay. We continue to need to license doctors and dentists and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of gray area in between where reform is possible and a lot of good vehicles to do so. Um, Arizona went so far as to pass something known as a uh, right to earn a living act that actually gave uh, businesses or individuals the ability to bring suit in court uh, if they think a specific regulatory scheme or decision unnecessarily infringed upon their ability to earn a living uh, within a legal permissible line of work. And that's a wonderful idea. We need to turn the tables. We need to turn turn the presumption so that innovation and entrepreneurialism is not guilty until proven innocent, that it's innocent until proven guilty. They should get the green light of permissionless innovation more generally. And that's what we need these reforms for right now.
1: Okay, Adam, just a point of clarification. You've mentioned A-B test twice. I know what that is, but I'm not sure everybody else does. Can you briefly tell us what A-B test means?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, we had an experience before COVID where all of these rules and regulations were in effect. And then we had an experience post COVID where policymakers themselves started shedding these rules or at least suspending them temporarily. That is an important moment. Um, we have, uh, we've seen evidence that there's something like 700 plus rules at the federal level that have been suspended, many, many more at the state and local This gives us a chance as economists, political scientists, business people, and others to survey and study these things. And let's be clear this isn't about gutting regulation. This is about improving the quality of governance in the United States. It's about getting government more in line with common sense and the consent of the government. This is something we've lost touch with in the, in the U.S. recently. And this endless regulatory accumulation just never ends. We've got to find a way to address that and get these rules back in line with common sense.
1: All right, Patrick, I've got a question for you. Can you give examples of specific municipal regulations that could be sunset and suggestions how cities go about tackling that effort?
2: I can give examples of types of regulations that exist at the municipal level that might be uh, addressed That's, here.
1: Sounds like a plan.
2: So there's zoning That's the big one that that jumped jumped to mind, right? Uh, The zoning restrictions that make it so you can only have residences here, businesses of certain types there and other types elsewhere. That really, uh, even in normal times, that can be problematic, especially on things like housing prices. But it also is especially problematic when you have to be nimble if you're a business and try to pivot, as Beth mentioned earlier, to some other sort of business model. But maybe you can't if that sort of business model can't be implemented in the zone that you're located in. Another uh, thing that I think municipalities can look at is where are there requirements for in-person inspections of any sort, whether that's safety or like food safety, for example, Uh, that, that may often be state or federal, but even in those cases, I think the example makes sense. Can you turn those in-person inspections or visits or interactions into something that's virtual? Can you just have the business owner walk around with an iPhone, have FaceTime on, and show whatever inspector the inspector needs to see is in your business? Turning those sorts of inspections into virtual inspections, I think, would uh, obviously help with social distancing, but it also lowers costs tremendously because now you don't have to shut down your business while this inspector comes in and looks around. Shutting down your business presents tremendous opportunity costs to those business business owners. So that's another, uh, I think, specific example. Where can can inspections or other in-person interactions be turned virtual or electronic?
1: Here's another good question. Are there any distinct impediments, issues that have impacted women and minority-owned businesses during this year that have been impacted by COVID-19? And what can be done to help these businesses? Beth, we're going to go to you on that.
3: And I would say, when it comes to uh, the rollout of the P- the Paycheck Protection Program, we heard from some business owners there and some minority owners there that had problems finding a lender because this the PPP program. I hate to throw an acronym out there was facilitated through private lenders through bi- private banks there. So we did hear from you know some business owners, women, minority that had difficulty because they didn't have established relationships with the bigger banks that sort of got in on that first tranche of money there. An easier time getting that first tranche because they didn't have relationships. They may have worked with a very small bank community lender there, so that is one area with the financial support that was that was very challenging for some of that demographic. Well, just as a follow, perhaps something can be done. And the Wall Street Journal
1: had a, uh, an article earlier in the week, basically saying uh, they're trying to decide what to do with leftover funds from the six hundred seventy billion dollar. Uh, paycheck protection program, which is more than a hundred billion remaining. So perhaps they could focus on some of the uh, minority and small business owners.
3: That's that's a great idea. In addition to some industries too that were particularly hard hit, there. I think that would be fantastic.
2: To connect a couple of questions. So minority uh, and and female business owners and occupational licensing. There's a connection there. So I, I many years ago, wrote a review of the literature on occupational licensing and wanted to look at things like how does it affect consumer prices? How does it affect safety? And one thing that jumped out in that review is occupational licensing does disproportionately affect minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses. So if you, if anyone wants to dig into that you can you can reach out to me I've got a whole paper that a nice table lay, laid out there. The point is occupational licensing is part of the problem uh faced by minority and women-owned businesses and this isn't a covid specific example except so much as we're thinking about ways to get regulations or other uh other obstacles to small business success out of the way and this would be one that very specifically targets the success of minorities and uh, women-owned businesses.
1: All right. We've got four more questions in the queue here, and let's try to get through them. Uh, Any suggestions on business license fees? Beth, that's for you.
3: Yeah, and that's a great question. Just talked to a business owner who was trying to sort of pivot or rechange her business. Um, Small cafe, wanted to move outside, which is now permitted. And then she looked into all the, the, the permitting requirements that are going to be required related to that and the costs associated with getting a permit for putting up, you know, an outdoor canopy. And the, and she said, I just don't even know that it's worth it because this might be a temporary measure. And she said, I can't believe they're going to charge me to have the health inspector come in and put the canopy up and all that and the costs associated with that, so I would say, again, going back to the municipalities, thinking through, is there a way that we can just kind of put a temporary pause on these permitting fees like this?
1: Okay. The pandemic at its heart is a healthcare challenge resulting in an economic challenge. What are some of the issues not covered already that make it a challenge for small business owners when it comes to providing healthcare to their employees going forward? Who
3: would like this one? It's a very broad question. Beth, go ahead. I mean, yeah, I can, I'm i happy to start, just jump in too. So, I mean, the pandemic's been hard enough on small businesses and it was already, you know, we already saw that there was declining role, enrollment in the small group market for small business owners. I mean, the cost and availability of health insurance has, on NFIB's problems and priorities, has been number one for, I can't even remember, as long as I've been at NFIB there. And so I think that this pandemic overall is going to, this you know again, the small group market is was in distress, I would argue, and it's likely going to get worse due to the pandemic and I think it's something that you know the government officials need to turn their attention to at the national level. What
1: countries are doing a better job than the u s at balancing needed regulation versus business and entrepreneurship? I've read that Nordic countries are a good model of low business regulations combined with a more robust social safety net. Patrick or Adam, that's for you
2: yeah, I think that's. Correct. Uh, We have some preliminary data from Denmark, for example, comparing how much regulation there is in Denmark to the U.S. And uh, the numbers, while we haven't put them out there yet, and so I'm not going to get specific, there is looking pretty good for Denmark compared to the U.S. in terms of how many restrictions, regulatory restrictions, there are overall and how many there are per person or per capita. Uh, And so the, we've, think that the model that's being embraced over there for regulations is simply one that involves some sort of cleanup process. And that's one we don't have here. This goes back to what Adam was saying earlier. We have a tendency for regulatory accumulation in the U.S. If you look back over time, we had about 400,000 regulatory restrictions on the book's In 1970, at the federal level in the US, this is ignoring state and local stuff. And now we're at well over 1 million. This is despite President Trump's attempt to cut back, right? We're still at well over 1 million. In fact, the needle has barely budged uh, during the first few years of Trump's presidency. So the, the issue is an issue of process. It's the way that regulations are uh, constantly created. The regulators themselves view their jobs as making more regulations and not as looking back at old ones and seeing if we can clean them up. That's the U.S. model. Uh, Scandinavian models, I think, embraces more of the cleanup side of things. And you can see the results in the data.
1: With regard to your comments earlier about British Columbia, I know that the regulators there don't see themselves as regulators. They see themselves as the manager of the regulatory programs or the managers of the process. And that change in viewpoint has been very instrumental in what they've done to decrease uh, their regulations by 40%, at least in the first go-round. All right, let's see. We've got a question here. Micro businesses have been mostly left out of the federal response PPP program, being that most of them don't have solid commercial banking relationships so much so that Kiva has stepped up in to provide capital to these businesses. Does the federal government need to use a better, and I would say more surgical approach, to reach these micro-businesses that end up making up the majority of vibrant downtowns? I don't know, who would like that one, Beth? Micro-businesses.
3: Yeah, so I think there there were a lot of small small businesses that were left out of that first PPP funding there because they were not working with traditional lenders beforehand, so they did not get in. There is still money available out there, and I would encourage until August eighth, anyone interested. Or, you know, if you're with a city or, you know, municipality, if you know of businesses to please, you know, get the word out that there is still money in the PPP program that is available and there are lenders, you know, open to working with micro businesses. But I would say just in the next phase, too, this is something that we're asking Congress to look at a more targeted approach to ensure that those that need money get it. Uh, We've got one minute left, and I I know I'm not supposed to do this, but
1: does anybody have any closing comments? Have I not asked you a question that should be uh, asked and answered in the one minute we have left? Adam, I'm going to go with you.
0: We've solved all the world's problems here, Karen. It was job well done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, then I want to thank all of you for joining us for the webinar, and thank you, uh, the viewers who have tuned in today. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining us.